the phrase, my worth and my unworthiness, is really getting close to the basic secret of happiness and joy and meaningfulness and so forth. My worth and my unworthiness. That, that's a phrase that comes directly from what the gospel teaches us, not only about God, but about ourselves. So I look forward to touching on some of that today, actually. So we'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry. The rest of you can have a seat. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Proverbs, chapter 30. Now, some of you know my genuine lack of administrative prowess. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, Chris, you, you scheduled this whole Proverbs series and you missed Proverbs 31 by one week. You know, that would have been the Mother's Day text. Like, no, I, I know what I'm doing. Just chill out. There, there are a lot of great texts in the chapter that we're looking at today for mothers. Um, the first one I could talk about that I won't is in verse 11. Uh, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Or I could preach on verse 17 which is a verse you should have your kids memorize when they're about two. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Should be on every mom's refrigerator. And I know a lot of you well enough, especially mothers of young children, I could simply preach on the second half of verse one that says, I am weary, O God, I am weary. I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. But I think that today we're supposed to talk about contentment. And so our text for this morning will be in Proverbs chapter 30 from verses 7 through 9. There's a man who is writing this named Agar. And uh, I just kept seeing Aggie when I was reading it. Uh, but uh, there's this man named Agar, and he's, he's writing this section of Proverbs. And he prays this prayer. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So we're talking about contentment this morning. We'll define it in a moment. Some of you know that I have a pretty substantial love for 70s rock, and fairly often as I go through uh, my sermon prep, a number of songs come to mind, and they ain't the Chris Tomlin kind. Uh, very rarely are they in the quote-unquote Christian genre. Sometimes entire bands or multiple songs from a single band will come to mind, and when he realized that the Lord wanted us to talk about contentment this morning, the band that came to mind was the Rolling Stones. And I mention that in part because I know there is at least one mom here who loves the Rolling Stones, and I think that's pretty cool. In fact, I don't know how a, a child of that mom could ever hope of being cooler than their mom. Their mom is a Rolling Stones fan. But uh, the song that you would probably think of related to contentment from the Stones is, I can't get no satisfaction, right? I can't get no satisfaction. There's actually another song, a song called Wild Horses, that if you hear it from the perspective almost as if God's singing, it, it sounds very much like something out of the Minor Prophets. And the first line of that song is, childhood living, it's easy to do, the things you wanted, I bought them for you. And there's this stage of the Christian life 
where it isn't so obvious whether or not we love God or we love the stuff that God gives us. And that's the first line of this song. It's wrestling with sort of the surface level relationship. It's the easiest part. It's the entry part of the Christian life. Childhood living, it's easy to do. You wanted things, I bought them for you. And there's a point in every Christian's life where God wants to have a conversation with us about this. And essentially the conversation boils down to something like, okay, Chris, do you love me or do you love my stuff? Like that's the conversation that every Christian has to have with God at some point. And he kind of decides when we have that conversation and we'll have that conversation multiple times in our lives. But it is a very fundamental question related to what you would consider, what any of us would consider to be the nature of true love. It's beyond childhood living, where we want things and the provider gives them to us. It has to be more than that. And the second line of that stone song is, graceless lady. So let me, just so you're, you're feeling it with me here. All right, so childhood living, it's easy to do. The things you wanted, I bought them for you. Graceless lady, you know who I am. You know I won't let you slip from my hands. And I like listening to music where the artist is a heathen, but he's accidentally saying really godly and meaningful things. <laughs> and that's one of those instances. It's all about this idea of how am I going to interact with God? Do I love God or do I love the stuff he gives me? Do I love God or do I love the idea of Christian marriage that seems to be superior to other forms? Do I love God or the idea of a godly household which seems superior to other forms and so on and so forth? And so that's really the terms of our conversation this morning related to contentment. There are two books that I consulted in addition to the Bible on this subject, and one was written during a great time of plagues and wars by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. Can you imagine being a pastor during a season of the Black Plague and writing letters to your church? Actually, these are just sermons he preached on contentment. Well, that's what happened. And Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment as an inward, quiet, gracious frame of the spirit, the whole soul, Judgment, thoughts, will, affections, and are all satisfied and quiet. There's a, a woman named Nancy Wilson. Uh, read, some of you may have read some of the things her husband has written. She wrote a book called Learning Contentment. And Nancy says that contentment is a deep satisfaction with the will of God. So there you've got some definitions of contentment, but the truth is it's one of those attitudes that's like, okay, I can define it, but you really kind of need to see it demonstrated and displayed. And I think what we've got in our text this morning is a demonstration of what contentment actually looks like in an individual life. In verse 8 of Proverbs 30, he says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. The word for falsehood there is like emptiness, hollowness. It's like remove all the mirages from me. Remove all the charades, all the stuff that's not really real. Remove it from me. And then he asks for something really interesting. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Well, right there we see one of the keys to contentment, which is the absence of comparison. One of the keys to contentment is the absence of comparison. He says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. For me. 
Don't feed me with the food that is needful for that guy over there. Don't feed me with the food that someone else is eating. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So in some sense, contentment is rooted in believing that God knows what you need and that what you need is unique to you. There's a sort of individualizing that is inevitable in the Christian faith. As much as we are anti-pure individualism, as much as we are pro-community, we have to say that every single person, even one of these children, all of these children, must each stand before God as individuals. And so what this man is figuring out as he's beginning to display contentment is he's figuring out that I have to relate to God as someone who knows me and knows what I need. Now that's good, but here's a challenge. I don't think you can know what you need. I don't think you could pray the prayer that he's praying unless you know what your purpose is. Imagine you went into Dick's Sporting Goods and you were just told by someone, hey, show up and meet me next week. We're going to play a sport. Here's my credit card. Get what you need. Well, this is going to be, there's going to be a lot of carts full of things if you have to prepare for all possible sports. I mean, you can do it there, but like that would be quite the effort. What you've got to know in order to know what you need is what you're about, what your purpose is. I have seen, and as a pastor for a long time now, a great deal of disquietude flow up in the hearts of people who have no direction. A great deal of disquietude flow up in the hearts of people who have no direction. The truth is, is that if we don't have purpose, if we don't have direction, we really don't know what we need and therefore have no clear sense of whether God's providing or not. So imagine this nightmare scenario, men. On a Saturday morning, your wife says, hey, would you watch the kids? No, that's not it. Uh, the nightmare has only begun. <laughs> hey, would you watch the kids? I'm going to Target. Here's the nightmare. Um, and you say, sure, what do we need from Target? And she says, oh, I'm just going to look around. <laughs> the truth is, is that if contentment is sort of a satisfaction, it's rooted in a sense of purpose. And when we don't know what we're about, we don't know what we're going for, we don't have a direction, we're open to all sorts of suggestion. And the woman who wanders into Target just to look around is going to wind up putting more money in Chip and Joanna's pocket as a consequence. So what we need to understand in order to understand God taking care of our needs is like, well, what do I need? Like, what is my life about? What am I actually supposed to be doing as a human being who was put here by God? Well, these are very old questions. The Westminster Shorter Catechism starts this way. It says, what is the chief end of man? End being just purpose. What is the chief end of man? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So now we have a sense of, well, what am I supposed to be about in life? Well, what I'm supposed to be about in life is knowing God and enjoying him forever. So now I have to assess, do I have the things I need to do that? That's actually what's going on in our text. Look back at verse 7 again. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. We'll talk about that in a moment. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you see the lens, the purpose he has for his processing all of the perspective options that lay before him? The lens he's looking at is his purpose. And what is his purpose? He wants to be true to God. 
That's his purpose. That's what's helping him decide how much he wants, how much he needs, and so on and so forth. So contentment really flows downstream of purpose. A sense of disquietude and anxiety often flows downstream from just not knowing what you're supposed to be about. And what we see here is what we are all supposed to be about. We're supposed to be about, as the catechism says, knowing God and enjoying him forever. It seems to me, having counseled and walked with many people and having been witness to the train wreck that is my own soul, uh, it seems to me that you can't be content with your circumstances until you're content with God's call on your life. You can't have satisfaction and quietness in your soul until you look at what God has called you to and say, that's right, that's true, that's good. The first place contentment must land is contentment that God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is not ultimately or mostly your own happiness, but it's to honor and glorify God. Now, what we're going to see here as we survey through this passage is that if you're struggling with contentment, and to be honest, I mean, who hasn't struggled with contentment? There's a lot of promises in Scripture that I want to lay on you really quickly, just kind of in a rapid-fire succession. The first thing I want you to see is that contentment is something that you have to learn. Contentment is not a thing that you either have or you don't have. Contentment is something you learn. In Philippians 4, a letter written by Paul while he's in jail, says this in 4 verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, one of the interesting things to point out is that in our text in Proverbs 30, we've got sort of um, childish kind of growing into contentment. He still needs circumstances to be a certain way. He says, don't make me too rich. If I'm too rich, I'll forget you. He's like, don't make me too poor. If I'm too poor, I'll be tempted to steal. And there's another level beyond, we're, we should be just very proud of that. I mean, I think we'd all be happy to be there. But Paul's even beyond that. Paul's learned the secret to be content in every circumstance. Circumstances no longer have a primary factor on his understanding of God's goodness. So that's the goal. We see it sort of in its infancy in Proverbs 30. We see it in sort of its maturity in Philippians 4. Uh, but the goal is, is to get there. And the idea is that it's something you've got to learn. It's something you've got to learn. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The second thing I just want to put forth to you is, is that the Bible says very clearly that contentment is worth learning. Contentment is something you must learn, and it is something worth learning. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to fall rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I just want to give you three benefits, three reasons why you'd want to learn contentment. The first one is, as Paul names explicitly, it will keep you from the love of money. You know what the love of money is? I figured this out this week. The love of money is sort of like one of those gift cards that has like 15 options. 
The love of money is actually just the thing you pick when you don't know what to pick. Because it's the thing that allows you to pick anything, right? So a lot of people have very clear purpose in their life. And so they're like, money is just a secondary thing for them. They're, they're trying to do something, trying to accomplish something. Money's coming down. That's not what's going on here. This love of money is someone, it's not a wealth versus poverty issue. It's someone who simply won't identify what I said earlier, that the point of life is to honor and glorify God. So if you have contentment, you'll be spared from this. That's one thing Paul says. The second thing I think is important, especially on this day as we talk to moms and we talk about these children whom we've prayed for, is that contentment really makes the home habitable. Uh, Discontentment really makes a home inhabitable. And contentment really makes a home habitable. You know, as many of you know, like I did not come from, from affluence, so certainly at, to the extent that we're middle class, we were lower middle class, and often not even that. And I don't really know how this happened, but whenever I was started dating, um, a, a lot of the people I dated, a lot of the girls I dated were, you know, came from family of substantial means. And so they would have these marvelous houses, and we had the house we had. And uh, it was so interesting to see how often people, not just my girlfriends, but just my friends, would prefer to hang out in my house. And, and I would eventually ask them, like, why do you want to come to my house? Like, we don't even have a video game console and, like, and, like our TV's, like, a giant box and we get three channels. And, like, why would you want to come to my house? And it was always, like, your house feels different than my house. Your house feels different than my house. And what they were talking about was it was a house full of people who had peace with God. And because they had peace with God and some measure of contentment, and coveting was sort of like the worst sin you could commit in my house. Since I was a little kid, it was the worst sin. And because that was just thrown away, there was this way of living that was gracious and warm and accommodating, and it flowed out of the contentment that people had in their own hearts toward God. Proverbs 21.9 says, Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Well, what's it actually saying there? Well, that quarrelsome is, at the very least, cousins to discontentment. It's someone who can't be satisfied. It's someone who can't be okay. It's someone who doesn't have peace. In her book on contentment, Nancy Wilson writes, Contentment maintains control over the spirit and does not allow ungoverned passions and unrestrained emotions to bring discomposure right at the moment when the greatest composure is called for. Contentment calms the heart and leads the heart to act and speak wisely, even when under great provocation. I think this is one of the the most beautiful things I've seen in my mom for all of these years, knowing her. And I see the very same thing in my wife. There's a bit of an unflappable stillness to their souls. So when the worst thing happens, and it would be so tempting to freak out, there's this sort of bath of calm and trust in God that makes the home, in its hardest moments, a livable place. She's a, Nancy Wilson's a pastor's wife, and her pastor just so happens to be somewhat of a professional troublemaker. I guarantee you there have been many instances when the, when painful things have fallen on their house, and sometimes because of her husband's fault. But to be the kind of person who has a contentment that keeps all of those panic things suppressed, or even they're just not even there, and is able to navigate difficulty, chaos, pain, conflict, attacks with peace, friends, this is 
This is a huge benefit. There's a poem, I think it's Kipling, if you can keep your head while all, all those around you are losing theirs. Where does that come from? It comes from trust in God. It comes from trusting God. Now, a third thing that's related, and that is, is that contentment has some connection to what the Bible describes when the Bible describes feminine beauty. So Jeremiah Burroughs' definition of contentment is, contentment is an inward, quiet, gracious frame of the spirit, the soul, judgment, thoughts, will, affections, are all satisfied and quiet. That's Jeremiah Burroughs' definition of contentment. Well, some of you ladies know very well Peter's prescription to women in 1 Peter 3. And you've probably heard some overlap there between what Burroughs defines as contentment and what Peter defines as beauty. He says in 1 Peter 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's saying, don't make that the point. Not don't do that, just don't make that the point. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is God, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So three benefits of contentment. Number one, it keeps you from the love of money. Number two, it makes your home a special place. And number three, it's actually adjacent to what the Bible describes as feminine beauty. Now, how do we learn it? We should learn it. We see that we should learn it. How do we learn it? Well, we go back to our text in Proverbs 30. And we see that the number one thing we do to learn contentment is to learn about God. Look at verses 1 through 2 of Proverbs 30. The words of Agar, son of Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Why is he weary? Why is he worn out? As we press on in the text, we see he is worn out because he's been trying to understand God. He is worn out because he is trying to understand God. He has put forth a great deal of effort, and he is not impressed with the results of his effort. Look at verse 2 and 3. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. You could have your husband memorize this one. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now, Agar is clearly overstating his case. He's being a bit dramatic. The truth is, as we'll see in a moment, he's learned quite a bit. But the thing that you want to see here is that some people will say, I don't like studying theology because it makes me feel dumb. And I just want to remind you, that's a feature, not a bug. See, if you, if you only do stuff that you know you can be good at, you'll never get to know God. Or you'll, you'll just falsely think that you're more aware than you are. Theology is weird this way. You get to a certain point of learning, and you feel like you understand it. And this is a very dangerous place to be. And you usually get there about, what, 21? Hands, what'd you say? Uh, <laughs> you get to this certain place in theology, and you think, I understand this. This is a very dangerous place to be. You think you've got it licked, you don't. If you keep going beyond that, you will feel like you're actively getting dumber. This is actually true of, of basically all science. Uh, theoretical mathematics, physics, and so on and so forth. There's this barrier, if you pass through it, 
you feel dumber than you did two years ago when you were in master's level science education. And so what the goal of theology is in part to make you feel like Agar feels. He's like, well, why would I want to feel that way? Listen, the feeling of dumbness isn't far off from the feeling of smallness. And the feeling of smallness is part of what true worship feels like. It's okay to go ahead and dig deep into knowing God and come back thinking, do I understand any more? You understand that you're not God, which is a great start. It's actually quintessential to being kind of successful as a Christian is to understand you aren't God. I always want to be super careful, and those women that know me, you know, know this, that, I, that I, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned that we're not encouraging women to dive into the deep end of the theological pool. I don't want a math is hard Barbie congregation when it comes to theology. I think it's highly chauvinistic to hand a woman a little simplified, reduced, pink-covered book on the Christian life and say, here, this is all you need to know. I'll go read John Frame and John Calvin and so on. I just want to encourage all of you ladies who I love and respect to go ahead and dive yourselves as individuals into the deep end of the pool. C.S. Lewis, maybe this will encourage you. C.S. Lewis said, I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. So, girls, get a pipe. Now, the point is, is it's not a bad thing for God to simply overwhelm you. You can think back to the times in which, um, you know, it's, it's raining out every day and, and the kids are inside and they can't go outside and play. And so, like, they're just inside for, uh, frankly, an unrighteous amount of time. Well, what do kids like that, what do they get like when they don't get to go outside and get worn out doing the thing they were made to do? Well, they get anxious and unsettled and antsy. So let me throw this paradigm and see what you think. Should you maybe wear out your brain a little bit more on worship so that you don't have the energy to worry? I think you can't do both of those things at the same time. I'm pretty sure on that one. I don't think you can worry and worship with your brain at the same time. Agar says, I am worn out. What's he worn out doing? He's worn out searching out the deep things of God. What does that produce? It produces a sense of humility that he doesn't know what's best for him. It produces a sense of awe that God does. He essentially says, God, I realize now I'm an extremely tentative, I have an extremely tentative grip on things. And one of the most beautiful things about learning theology is it's like, okay, if there's a God who's too big to understand, that means he's at least big enough to take care of me, right? If, if there's a God that's too big to contain in my mind, then that God is probably big enough to take care of all the things I've got racing around on my mind. The truth is, is that as we move through the text, he actually is making good progress. He's learning more than he thinks he is. And this is always true of people who have been humbled by worshiping God through studying him. He asks some really profound questions, questions almost no one in the Old Testament asks. He says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Hmm. 
He, asks, he says, who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? And then he says something out of left field. What is his name and what is his son's name? This Old Testament Aggie dude is thinking that God might have a son and that he might ascend and descend. He's making more progress than he thinks he is. So that's one idea, one key to learning contentment. Learn about God. Dive into the deep end. The second way to learn about contentment is to get rid of lies. Get rid of lies. Agar writes in verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not from me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So I want you to know just one thing to take away for sure today is that by definition, lies have to do with discontentment. You say, well, why is that? Why is it true that by definition, lies have to do with discontentment? Because lies are about things that are not, right? Lies are about things that are not. Discontentment is about things that could be, should be, would be, if only so-and-so and this and that and so on. But the link is even tighter than that. Because the very first lie was directly aimed at sowing discontentment in Eve. Did God really say, he says to her. And so lies and discontentment, they have a lot in common. And I can't get into all of that because I am committed to getting all of you home to your beautiful lunches and so on and so forth. I've boiled it down in just one takeaway regarding this point, and that's simply this. Two of the main lies that sow discontentment are grumbling and ingratitude. Two of the main lies that sow discontentment are grumbling and ingratitude. When you say a lie, that's a, that's a sin of commission. You're putting wrong information out there. And that's what grumbling is. Grumbling is vocalizing wrong information. When you say a lie, it's a sin of commission. You're putting false information out there. I'll explain a little bit more of that in a moment. But the sin of omission with speech is to not say the thing that is true, and by not saying it, you're misrepresenting reality. So if you're having a conversation with your spouse and they omit something on purpose that is really important for you to know, that's a lie. It's a lie of omission. It's a lie of withholding information. And friends, let me be super clear with you. Ingratitude is a lie of omission. You and I abstaining from frequent praise of God and thanking God for his goodness and care is a misrepresentation of reality. Just as sure as our grumbling is a misrepresentation of reality, so our ingratitude is a misrepresentation of reality. So if we have to go kind of quick, we do, and we're saying, well, what's one lie or two lies that we want to remove from ourselves in order to learn contentment? It would be, let's remove the lies of grumbling and in gratitude. The truth is, is that when I read all of these writers on contentment, they all came to identify something that surprised me. They would say that when you vocalize grumbling, you're actually making your heart less content. You're not simply expressing your heart you're making your heart less content than it already is. Nancy Wilson says, the more we hear ourselves grumble and complain, the more we take it to heart and believe our own words. Uh, Burroughs says, 
there is the evil effect of murmuring, grumbling. It causes shiftings of spirit that they murmur and are discontent and are liable to temptations to, to shift for themselves in sinful and ungodly ways. Discontent is the ground of shifting courses and unlawful ways. So here's what I thought when I, when I got to that. We're almost done. I would have thought that grumbling is merely a sign of a discontented heart. And here's what all of these people are saying in response to that. And I traced it through and found it to be true and biblical. Your grumbling is just a sign of surface discontentment, potentially, very likely. Often our grumbling is just a sign that, like, yes, we, are, we have a, the surface of our hearts. Think of it this way. The crust of our hearts is discontent. And what all of these writers keep on saying is, is that the more you vocalize that, the more you're teaching your own heart to be ungrateful and discontent. And so the argument essentially is, is that you're preaching to yourself. You're allowing something you feel that honestly maybe just shouldn't be said and instead gratitude chosen. You're communicating to your own heart. You're preaching to your own heart further reasons to be discontent. So in some sense, grumbling is sort of pushing your heart toward discontentment. And in the same sense, gratitude when vocalized is pushing your heart toward contentment. So how are we going to learn contentment? We're going to learn contentment by studying the deep things of God, and we're going to learn contentment by getting rid of various lies in our lives, two of those lies being ingratitude and grumbling. Now, in conclusion, I learned this week, this is the, you'll be able to hear how pastors think about process information. I learned this week that Nazis used to create booby traps for allied officers, and that when the Nazis were forced to retreat from a house, they would grab a piece of artwork and they would pull it off the wall and they would put a bomb in the wall. And then they would put the artwork back on the wall with a wire tied to the bomb and they would leave the picture kind of crooked. And when someone would go to straighten the picture, they would die. And when I heard this, I thought of all the people in my congregation who would be dead. And after feeling stressed about your death, I realized that of all the people in my congregation that would be dead, a few of them were men. <laughs> What's the point? Sometimes how can I make this better is the wrong way to go. Sometimes the point is, thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you, God, for all you've done. Help me stop fidgeting. Help me stop fidgeting in my soul. Help me stop fidgeting in my heart. Help me quit looking for optimization and just be glad there's a picture on a wall and not go any further than that. So know God. Wear yourself out on worship instead of worry and keep all the lies far from us. God has been incredible good, incredibly good to all of us and we have many reasons to be grateful. Well, for communion, to introduce communion. Verse 4 through 5, I've mentioned that Agar is like asking really interesting questions for an Old Testament person. He's like, who has ascended to heaven and come down? And who has gathered the wind in his fists? And who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? And who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? 
And what is his son's name? Surely you know. A little bit ago, I referenced that, you know, this is sort of a, a youngish version of contentment here in Proverbs 30. And then we get to Philippians 4 and we see this very mature version of contentment in Paul. It's like, why? Well, it's because Paul knows the answers to these questions. And thank God, through his grace, on this side of the cross, you and I know the answers to these questions. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in the garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? How was Paul able to achieve sort of this ultimate contentment level? Because he knows who did those things, who does those things, and he knows that that God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for his all. And he knows that if God did not spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? I would be happy if all of us left here at agar-level contentment. But what's in front of us here is a declaration that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And what's presented before us today is, is that God was willing to suffer in order to save us and make us his children. And as his children, we have every reason to be content and confident in him. And so every single week when we gather at Providence, we come and we partake of this table and we recognize what God has done for us. Now, us means something specific in the Bible. Us means someone whose plan, when they die and faces God, is to say, I trust in Jesus and what he has done for me and not in my own good works and not in my own plans. So if you're someone today, you're here and you're visiting, and I'm so glad you're here, by the way, and you're someone who says, my hope for eternity is that Jesus has shed his blood for me and I want to trust in that and live for him, then I would invite you to come up and partake of this reminder that God has given us to participate in every week to remind us that we're going to be fine. We have every reason to be content. We have every reason to express gratitude because the amount of God that we have seen is as follows. He loved us enough to give us his son, to offer him up, that he who, was no, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I'll pray, and then you'll come and partake. Lord God, we love you and are thankful that you are our rock. Lord, you are our absolute. Lord, you are everything that is secure. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for showing us your love and making it possible for us to know you by sending your son to die for our sins. I pray, God, that always people who have placed their faith in you come and partake of this table. You fill their hearts full of confidence in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.